Good morning, church family. Before I get into the message this morning, I have an announcement. Uh, there is some wrong information in your handout. The uh, outdoor baptisms, it's named wrong. It's geode baptisms because it's moving back to geode. And the address is wrong because that's next to geode, but it's not in geode. So I'm not going to explain all the details. If you really want them, you can ask me after the service. But the water quality has improved. We're going back to geode. And uh, if you're not familiar with where the beach is at Geode, there's signs. You can follow those. It'll get you to the beach. And uh, you can be there to watch 19 brothers and sisters in Christ get baptized this evening. So praise the Lord for that. And uh, I hope you can make it. Bring a lawn chair. uh, Bring a blanket. It's supposed to be great weather. Bring some water just in case. Uh, But it should be a great time praising the Lord together for what he's done. Uh, And we're going to hear some testimonies. Their their testimonies are going to be read uh, bef- as they're heading into the water before we baptize them. So you're going to hear some great stories of how God has worked in their lives as well. Now, as we get into our sermon this morning, before we get in too deep, we, have, we actually have an immense task before us, eight chapters of Scripture, and uh, 11 years of David's life is what we're going to cover. And, and before we do that, I, w- I want to remind us of two promises that God has made to David, two promises that are going to kind of walk alongside each other, through the rest of David's life, and and in some ways seem to compete with each other. And and so we need to keep them in mind, because it's easy to forget the promises of God, but but we got to remember this. When God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. You can guarantee that when God says something is going to happen, he is going to see it through. And so the first promise that we see is way back in 2 Samuel 7, seems like months ago now, just a few weeks ago, But that's when God promised David that his kingdom would continue forever. David was going to have a son, and that son was going to be established in his father's rule. He was going to be called like a son to God. Now, we know ultimately that's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the son of David that reigns forever. But David was understanding it as it would be fulfilled with one of his sons, and it would be partially fulfilled with one of his sons. So I can imagine David assumed he was going to die peacefully, hand his kingdom over to a son who was going to be a good king, a good leader of God's people. So that's the first promise. That's the first thing that's probably in David's mind. But then last week we saw that God made David another promise. And this was not a good promise, at least not from David's perspective. You see, David had sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband murdered. And so not only did God promise that the child between them would die, which he did, but then the prophet Nathan also conveyed that the sword shall never depart from your house. And later he said, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Basically, God's going to allow David to experience the pain and suffering he caused others. He's going to allow more sexual sin in the family. He's going to allow murder to take place. Now, David had repented. It's important to know David's relationship with God is good at this point. He had repented. He had confessed. He was forgiven. He was reconciled. To God, he was still king, and God's favor was upon him. But the consequences for David's sin are very real. 
They're not going to go away. David knows they're not going to go away. The sword will not depart from his house. Evil will come up from his own family, and his wives will be taken by another. So it must have been very difficult for David to know that God had said this was going to happen, to know that his sin was going to cause even more grief, even more pain, and that he would probably live to see much of it. But that's the nature of sin, right? You've heard it said, choose to sin, choose to suffer. But it's also true that when you choose to sin, you choose that others will suffer. When you choose to sin, not only will you suffer from it, but others will experience suffering because of your sin. That's why there's so much suffering in our world is because the world is full of sin and therefore full of suffering at the consequence of other people's sin. My sin causes suffering for those around me. When I'm unkind to my wife, there's suffering on her part. There's suffering in our relationship. There's suffering in our family. When I am unkind to my kids, our relationship suffers. And and if unchecked, that suffering continues and grows and becomes unbearable. Your sin will cause you to suffer. I'm I'm sure it already has. But it's also going to cause others around you to suffer. There's no way around it. And that's what we're going to see today. David's sin causes irreparable harm. It destroys or nearly destroys him, his family, his kingdom, and his legacy. But remember, that's not the only promise of God, right? There's the other promise of God as well. God is merciful, and one promise does not void out the other. So the second thing doesn't void out the first promise. They don't cancel each other out as if, as if both are null. All God's promises run their full course. They're going to run parallel to each other. They're going to interact with each other some, but they're both going to be fulfilled completely. And as we see in our passage today, or as we will see, as we will see in the rest of 2 Samuel, that God is still for David. God's not against David. He's not opposed to David. He is still for David's family. He's still for David's kingdom. God's not done with David. And friends, I want you to hear this. He's not done with you either. As we look at our passage today, as as perhaps you're reminded of your own sin and the consequences of your own sin, consider how God comes alongside David and walks him through his consequences and the suffering that he experiences because of it. Just as he sees David through, he will see you through as well. Because God has promised he will remain faithful to you. If you are his, if you are his child, if, if you have faith in him as David truly was, then he will remain faithful to you regardless of how much you waver. And we're going to see that that's not the case for everyone. God's not faithful to everyone. There's others in the story who Sin only leads to their consequences and ultimately their own destruction. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to 2 Samuel 13. And I am going to blitz through our passage today. As I said, it's eight chapters long. So buckle up. So the the consequences of David's sin started with the loss of the baby, but they didn't end there. They continue with his other children. And so David has a firstborn son named Amnon. And Amnon is a chip off the old block. His father had seen a woman, lusted after her, and decided he was going to have her, and he took her. And so Amnon says, you know what? I'm going to do the same thing. 
But the problem is that the the woman Amnon is after is also his half-sister. And so his sister puts up a fight, she resists, but Amnon ends up raping her. It's not really a nice way to say it, that's what he does. And it makes David angry, of course. You would be angry about it. But the problem is, according to the law, he can't put Amnon to death. I'm sure that's what he wanted to do. According to the law, there's not a whole lot David can do. He could fine him. If they weren't related, he could make them get married and make Amnon care for her the rest of his life. But they can't because they're siblings. And maybe David felt too close to the situation. Maybe David felt like he'd be a hypocrite if he punished Amnon for the sins that he had committed himself. We don't know why David did nothing, but we do know that he did nothing. And because of it, the seeds of anger and resentment grow in one of his other sons. Absalom is the full brother of Tamar, the half-brother of Amnon. And the rest of our story revolves around Absalom's decisions, his choices, his anger, his revenge. See, Amnon gets it all started, but Absalom is the bigger villain. So Absalom's actually a really smart guy. If you read through the text, you realize he's tactical, he's patient, he waits, he thinks. And ultimately, it leads to his destruction. But in the beginning, it seems like he's going to get his way. And so he waits a couple years, he, he lets things simmer down, and then he invites all his brothers to a party. And in front of all of his other brothers, he has Amnon put to death. And so Absalom knows that the punishment for murder is death, and he knows his father tries to stick to the law, and so he takes off, he flees, he exiles himself to save his own life, and David has now lost three sons, the baby is dead, his eldest Amnon is dead, and his, the next in line for the throne, Absalom, is as good as dead. David's family's a mess, and David is torn up by it all. But we're not done. We're not even getting started. Joab recognizes that David is torn up about this, that David is in mourning, that after three years, he still longs to have reconciliation with Amnon. He, he, he just, he longs for this situation to be resolved. And so Joab comes up with this plan to convince David that he should pardon or, or at least welcome Ab, uh, Absalom back. And so he, he pulls a, a, a note from Nathan's playbook and he, he, he tells this older lady, hey, I want you to go into the king and I want you to give out this scenario for the king. And use this scenario to kind of tweak the king's heart, to side with you in your situation. And then I want you to point out that the situation between your fake sons, who one murdered the other, is the same situation between Absalom and Amnon, David's sons. And in, in so doing, uh, David would declare justice for her and allow her son to live. And, and then she would be able to say, well, you should do the same thing for Absalom. So that's what she does. She, she, she puts this case before King David. King David da- takes the bait, declares justice for her son, allows him to live, and then she convinces him that the same should be done for Absalom. He should welcome Absalom back and, and, and not allow his life to be taken. It actually is very similar to what God did with Cain. 
If you remember when Cain killed Abel, but way back in, in Genesis, Cain pled with God, oh, you know, he, he just got done murdering his brother, and then he's worried that his own life is in danger. And, and God has mercy on Cain, and he lets Cain go free. He's a marked man, but marked in the way that no one can take Cain's life. He lets Cain off with murder in one way, but God still rejects him from carrying on the promised Messiah, the, the, the line of the promised Messiah. Seth gets that honor, and Cain is banned from God's people, essentially. And so Absalom's situation is different, but David treats it the same way as that. He brings him back, but he holds him at arm's length. He doesn't let Absalom anywhere near David. And so Absalom's thinking to himself, why am I even back here? Life was better for me when I was in exile. I could do whatever I want. Now I'm kind of under this pseudo house arrest and and everybody still has bad ideas about me and what I did. And so Absalom, to, to, to really show you how treacherous of a person he is, in order to get Joab's attention, because he can't go to the king himself, but he can get Joab's attention, and then Joab can go to the king and, uh, and make an argument for Absalom, he decides he's going to burn Absalom's field so that Absalom has to go, hey, what are you doing? Why'd you burn my field? And he's like, oh, by the way, I just want you to take a message to the king for me. Absalom is not a good guy. And so Absalom, or Joab does go to the king and convinces David that, hey, um, Absalom put, put this before you. He says, hey, put me to death, call me a murderer and put me to death, or let me go free. Pardon me, full pardon. What are you going to do, dad? And so David doesn't have the heart to execute, really, the, the son who was next in line to be king, and he gives him a full pardon, lets him off the hook for murder. Now, you'd think that Absalom would be grateful at this point, and maybe he would have if he'd have done that right away. But he spent two years in exile and three years under house arrest, and so he's a little bitter. He's a little angry. Maybe he recognizes that his dad let him off the hook, but maybe his dad's not going to let him be king anymore. And so he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. He's going to rile up Israel to follow him. He's going to take the kingdom for himself. And so he does that. He begins a campaign to win the people's hearts over to him. He's handsome. He's charismatic. He's available. He's willing to be out among the people. He's sympathetic to their causes and he wins their hearts over. He does it all secretly. David has no idea what's going on. And then after 11 years, of, after 11 years after killing his brother, many years in exile and, and, and working all of this stuff, Absalom decides the time is right to reveal his coup. And so he does. He reveals the coup. People are shouting all over. Absalom is king in Israel. And David sees the writing on the wall. He's got to get out of town. He's got to protect himself. He's got to regroup. He's got to figure out what's going on in order to preserve his kingdom. And so he does. He packs up his family. They leave with the shirts on their back. And they flee Jerusalem to figure out their next steps. The one thing he does do, and this, this is a significant part of the story, it'll, it'll be evident here in a little bit, but he leaves behind 10 concubines. He leaves behind 10 women who are, if you're not familiar with a, what a concubine is, we don't really do that in the 21st century, at least not in the Western world, but a concubine was like a second-class wife. So you had your, your wife or your, your primary wives, if you were really wealthy, big landowner or a king, 
and um, then you'd maybe take on extra wives as they're kind of like servants, but servants with benefits. And it wasn't all sexual because they would, you know, help take care of the house. They'd provide offspring, but then they would, the, by marrying them as concubines, they would have security themselves. And they would know that they couldn't just be put out like a servant would. And it'd all be legal and, and all those things. So now you may be thinking to yourself, hey, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Multiple spouses, right? There's a lot of benefits to that. But I can tell you this in scripture, every time someone has multiple spouses, it ends really, really bad. There's always conflict. There's always problems. There's always disaster. And that's because, as we see in Genesis 1 and 2, that God gave marriage to be between a man and a woman. One and one, not one and many. And so that's why over and over again we see disaster. And that's why we see it spell disaster for David here in a little bit. Now, as David is fleeing, he finds out who his true friends are. He's on the run. And there's many who come to him. Some just come out of self-preservation. They're just like, you know what? I'm going to kind of help David just in case things turn out well for him. So maybe he'll look with blessing on me. But many of them do it because they care about David. They care about his kingdom. They recognize him as God's anointed one. So they provide food for him. They provide shelter for him. They provide all kinds of resources for him to survive and get through this uprising. In fact, a couple of them go with him, or many go with him, but some, David sends back. He says, I want you to go back to Jerusalem, and I want you to be a spy for me. Okay, I want you to report back to me what's going on with Absalom. And he even sends one guy back to say, I want you to go frustrate his plans if you are able. But some of those that came with David, he sends back to to be a part of the conspiracy, but also because he recognizes Um, their heart is in the right place, but it's not what he needs. And so those are the priests. The priests come with David. This is God's anointed. They follow David out of the city. They bring the Ark of the Covenant, right, where where God's presence is said to dwell. It's like, God is with you, David. It's essentially what they're saying. And David goes, no, send the Ark back. God is with me, okay? But I I don't need this as a symbol of his power or his influence in my life. That's what Saul did, right? That's what the people of Israel did. They, t- they took the, the ark out as if it was a lucky charm. And David's saying, I don't deserve that. If God is with me, he's with me. And if he's not with me, he's not with me. In fact, take a look at it in chapter 15, verse 25 and 26. This is how David communicates that. Then the king said to Zadok, that's the priest, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. Look, if God's for me, he's going to get me through this, and I'll get to see and worship God where he belongs to be worshiped. But then he goes on to say this, but if if God says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do what seems good to him. God's for me or he's against me. At this point, I I don't know for sure. I think he's for me, but I can't really do anything to convince him otherwise at this point, right? And so David's putting his trust in the Lord. He's not going to try to to twist God's arm to earn his favor. And then we see similar trust in God in the very next chapter, in, in chapter 16, when this guy is chasing David out of town, cursing at him, 
throwing stuff at him, just causing a huge ruckus, calling him all sorts of names, calling him a murderer. And uh, one of David's uh, soldiers is actually Joab's brother, Abishai. He's like, hey, let me, let me take care of him for you, right? Let me silence him for you. And, and so David uh, confronts him in verse 11. And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David's, he's got confidence that God is with him. He's got confidence that God's not leaving him behind, but he also recognizes that this is all his fault. He's brought this upon himself in a way by his own sin. Now, don't get me wrong. Absalom's responsible for Absalom's sins, but David recognizes this, these are the consequences of his own sin. So what happens next is that uh, David's like top advisor sides with Absalom. He doesn't come with, with David. He just stays in Jerusalem. And, when, when, and actually, it's probably part of the conspiracy from the beginning. And it's apparent that this guy is going to be Absalom's advisor. And David's a little concerned because this guy, he gives really good advice. He's a really wise guy. And, and, and it's even said in the passage that his advice is as if God were speaking himself. That's how his advice was understood. And so David prays God, you know, thwart his counsel, and he sends back one of his servants to kind of uh, intervene there and, um, and, and cause issues. But what this, what this counselor does, David's former advisor, now Absalom's advisor does, is he gets corrupted by the coup. He, he buys into this anti-David rhetoric, and he gives shrewd but wicked advice to Absalom. Now, it could be that he does that because, and maybe he's kind of bought in because he's actually Bathsheba's grandpa, and maybe he's like, hey, this is my chance to get back at David for what he did to my family. It's a, a, an assumption there, but he advises Absalom, hey, secure your place in your father's kingdom. You see those 10 concubines here that David left behind to take care of the house? Hey, why don't you take them up to the roof, pitch a tent, and sleep with all his wives? That then you will make yourself a stench in your father's eyes, and you will show Israel who is now king. And so that's what he does. He takes the advice. He takes David's wives up on the roof, into the tent they pitch, and in the place that David saw Bathsheba and lusted after her and decided he was going to go after her is the same place that his son violates 10 of his wives. Now, if you recall, this is a direct fulfillment of God's judgment communicated through Nathan back in chapter 12. And so as David regroups, uh, his, his spy outfoxes this other counselor. It's actually a neat exchange. We'll look at it here in a second. And it gives David some extra time. David's able to get away. He's able to regroup. He's able to get some rest. He's able to figure out what he's going to do to get his kingdom back. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to condense the last few chapters really quick here, okay? It's a long story. So to make it shorter, Absalom eventually goes after David and it's really actually anticlimactic. He gets caught in a tree. He's dangling there. Joab puts him to death. 
actually against David's wishes. David didn't want Joab to put him, anybody to put him to death. He said, deal kindly with him, don't kill him. But Joab is actually fiercely loyal to David, and he knows what's best for David. David's mixed by emotions. David is, you know, crossed between justice and his love for his son. And Joab recognizes that Absalom, in order for all this to go away, Absalom has to die. And so he goes against David's wishes, puts Absalom to death. David spends the whole day mourning the loss of his son. And Joab actually has to confront him and say, quit your crying for your son. You've got all these soldiers who risk their lives to you to save your kingdom. And the gratitude you show them is by crying for the guy that was trying to mess it all up. So David comes to his senses and and uh, makes things right with his people and, and begins to try to unify Israel. It's not as easy as it should be. There's some more chaos. There's a, a, another uprising. But eventually, David gets his kingdom back. Whoa. <laughs> That's a lot, right? Long story, a lot going on. Big, happy family of David's, right? No, as Chris would say, it's more like a dumpster fire. But I'm, I'm sure that's not even an extreme enough term to describe what's going on here. It's a mess. His family is an utter mess. But what are we supposed to do with all this? You read through these chapters. It could be depressing. You're, you're looking at this text and you're going, what, why is this in here? This isn't good. The Bible's supposed to be encouraging and uplifting. And it's supposed to show us what to do, not not, not what to do. David's not a good example. Joab's not a good example. Absalom's not a good example. No one in this story is really doing much, at least not in the big picture, to honor God, to bring him glory, to show him how we should live. It's just 11 years of bloodshed, 11 years of discord, 11 years of sexual violence, consequence upon consequence. Well, one thing this story does for us is it shows us that sin is costly. Sin is far more costly. It's far bigger, has far severe, more severe consequences than we can ever imagine. It doesn't just impact us. It doesn't just impact our family. It impacts everyone around us. You know, it's kind of like an iceberg, right? An iceberg, you, you see the tip sticking out of the water. But if you know anything about icebergs, you know that what's sticking out of the water is just a fraction of what lies below the surface. And that's the way sin is. And the consequences of our sin, we think, my sin's not that bad. It's just up here. But really, underneath, there's just tons and tons of consequences, perhaps even filtering down generations. But as David's consequences come cascading down, we actually do see good things happening in the story. We actually see God at work. God is at work in the story. We see... Three truths revealed about God in our story. God's not passive. He is active. And as the consequences come, God is right there alongside them working out his plan. And so the first thing we see is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God called the consequences and they unfolded exactly how he said. God told David what was going to happen and what he said is exactly what took place. But God also promised David that he would raise up a son for him, a good son who would succeed him on the throne. So David has these competing promises, right? 
And God is going to work that one out. He is still going to bring about this good son. It's not going to be Amnon. Amnon's rotten. He revealed himself that way. It's not going to be Absalom. David may have hoped it was still going to be Absalom. He, he maybe hoped that Absalom would be redeemed, but it wasn't going to be Absalom. It's going to be Solomon. We heard about him last week. And we see throughout this story that David is helpless, or at least he's paralyzed by his fear. He's paralyzed by his dread. He's paralyzed by the fallout from his sin. But here's the thing. God's not helpless. God is active. He is working, and he is bringing about his plan to deliver David through it and to thwart Absalom. I mean, you think about Absalom, the, the, the story, it's building. Absalom's got everything going for him. Success after success. David's on the run, tail tucked between his legs, and then Absalom gets his hair caught in a tree. And that's how he dies. His hair gets caught in a tree. He's dangling there, and the enemies surround him and kill him. Now, you may say that's a coincidence, but I would say that's a coincidence with a capital G. God was behind that. And we know God was behind that because it tells us in chapter 17 that when God sent uh, Absalom's advisor, he also sent David's spy advisor and both give counsel. And David had prayed, God, make, make my old counselor's wisdom foolishness. God doesn't do that. He doesn't make he doesn't answer the prayer the way David hopes for him to. He actually, the, the, his former counselor gives Absalom really good advice. And if Absalom would have followed it, he would have probably defeated David. But instead, what Absalom does is he hears from David's spy, which he doesn't know he's a spy. And his spy gives him advice contrary, and he goes along with that. And it was poor advice, at least for Absalom. It was really good advice for David. And God thwarts Absalom's plans. Take a look in verse 14 of chapter 17. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Now, I haven't been saying Ahithophel's name because I didn't want to say it 10 times. So that's David's former counselor, Bathsheba's grandpa, the guy who supposedly wants to help Absalom. And, but here's what it says. Read the next sentence. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. God was for David, guys. He's with David. He's sovereign. All this is chaos. All this is going on. But God is for David all along. It says so right there. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that David could be successful. Friends, God is in control at all times. And when the wheels are coming off the bus, he's still in control. When you are suffering, whether it's because you're boldly proclaiming Christ and living for him, and you suffer because of that, or whether it's because you've fallen into sin and you're facing the consequences of your sin, God is still there with you. He's working out his plan. Nothing can thwart it. That leads us to our next point. God doesn't abandon us. He's not going to leave us alone. Think about David's life, okay? Look, you look back in David's life. When he's on fire for God, what's going on in his life? He's on the run. He's suffering. He, he's scared of being killed by Saul almost his entire youth. He's on the run. He's doing good for God, and he's suffering. 
And then he, then he has a spell in there where things are peaceful. He has victory. He's king. Things are good. And then he sins. And then his suffering is caused by his sin. He's got to face those consequences. But guess what? God's still with him all throughout. In the good, he suffers. In the bad, he suffers. And all along, God is with David. And friends, God is with us. He doesn't abandon us. The, the very first thing we see when David sins is God sends Nathan to confront David. God sends Nathan to say, you're wrong. You need to repent. You need to get right with God. That's God being with David. Sure doesn't feel like it sometimes. We don't like that confrontation, but it's a good thing for us to be humble, to recognize our sin, to repent, and to turn from it. God is for David. He's with David. He provides him all kinds of friends who could have easily just stood back on the sidelines and could have said, we're just going to see how this plays out. David going to win? Is Absalom going to win? I'm not going to stick my neck out. Either way, if one of them wins, I'm going to be all right. I'm going to be able to live. But by siding with David, they're putting themselves at risk. And that's God providing for David through friends, through foreigners. There's a guy who, who, who's not even from Israel who's saying, I'm with you, David, to the end. Your God is now my God. I'm going to stick with you. You got these, the, this 80-year-old guy who can't do much, uh, can barely travel, and he's lending his support to David. God was with David. He was not abandoning him. God may help you through confrontation like Nathan or, or, or like Joab provided from David. He, may, he might show he's helping you through the, the fellowship of other believers coming alongside you and being there in your time of need. The author of Hebrews challenges those he writes to to trust God for his provision. And in, 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 in this passage, he quotes two different sections of the Old Testament. He quotes Deuteronomy, and he quotes the Psalms. Now, David would have been very familiar with the first part of this that, that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's right out of Deuteronomy. David would have known it. Probably would have been reminding himself of it throughout this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is with Israel. David, as their king, he is certainly with the anointed king. I don't know if David would have known this. It wasn't one of his psalms, but it is a psalm. So it could have been written during his time. It could have been written sometime later. But the author of Hebrews tells us, because God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Friends, there's nothing that can happen to us, nothing that can take place in our life that God's not in control of, that he's not seeing it through. Nothing can happen to you without God's guidance. Now, there's, there's some crazy things that even happened within the last few months to some of us. And it's like, why in the world did that happen? And, and I know some of you have walked through that, and you've now been able to look back and go, he's with me every step of the way. Every step of the way. Chris challenged us. When, when David was fleeing from Saul, he wrote the psalm that says, when I am afraid... I put my trust in you. You can bet David was reminding himself of that throughout this whole ordeal. You know, and, he, and here's the other reality. Here's the other thing we see in our passage today. Not, not only is God sovereign over all of this, not only is he with David, he's not abandoning David, 
But he's also the one responsible for David's discipline. And he's disciplining David out of love. God disciplines us out of love. God isn't vengeful toward David. He's not sitting up in heaven with a bag of popcorn, laughing at all the, the pain and suffering that's happening in everyone's lives. The rape, the murder, the overthrowing of the kingdom, those things grieve God far more than they would grieve us. But he lets them happen because God has a plan for David. You see, God has made a promise to David. I keep, I keep going back to this because it's huge. God wants David and his offspring to establish a kingdom that's going to be forever. Friends, we're part of that kingdom. God promised David a kingdom that would flow from his family. It would start with Solomon. David didn't know which son, but we know now it's Solomon. And it would continue down to Jesus. It would be concluded with Jesus and that we would be a part of that kingdom. And in order for David to be successful in establishing this kingdom, he needs discipline. David needs to stay on the right path. And in order for David to stay on the right path, it's discipline that is going to get him there, and it's discipline that is going to keep him there. Now contrast the Lord's discipline of David with David's lack of discipline for his sons. What did David do when his sons needed discipline? He just stood back and let it happen. He didn't discipline Amnon. He didn't counsel Absalom on how he should deal with Amnon and what he did. He just kind of let them do whatever they wanted. It, it seems like maybe David didn't discipline his kids at all. See, discipline is good. We don't like it. It's painful, but it's meant to correct us. It's actually meant to keep us from further sin. It's meant to keep us right with God. It's meant to keep us safe. It's meant to help us get to the point where we can glorify God with our lives rather than embarrass him. And so it's necessary for God to allow consequences in our life. It's necessary for God to discipline us. We need to learn from our mistakes. You know, you don't, you don't keep a child safe by letting them do whatever they want, right? You teach them where danger is. And sometimes they need reminders. And sometimes they need reminders that are going to sear into their memory so that they begin to learn where the danger is and where the safety is. I don't let my kids play in the street because I know they're going to eventually get hurt if they do. And so the pain they're going to experience from my discipline is going to be far less than the pain they're going to experience from getting hit by a car. David needs this correction in his life to keep him sober about his role as king. David had a huge responsibility. He was king of God's people, and he was the father of this everlasting kingdom. And so God essentially allows all of this to happen to David to keep him humble, to keep his eyes on his duty of fulfilling what God had promised would come through him. In Hebrews 12, the author says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
What he's saying here is don't shrug off your discipline as if it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Discipline is meant to show us that our sin is very serious. It's a warning. It's meant to warn you back into obedience for your good. But it also says don't get worn out by your discipline, right? Don't get worn out by your discipline. Hang in there, right? The discipline you're experiencing is a good thing. It means that God loves you. If he disciplines you, he considers you his son. In fact, the passage goes on to say that if you don't face the Lord's discipline, it's probably a good indication that you are not his child. Amnon and Absalom didn't get any discipline from the Lord. All they got were judgment. Hebrews 12, uh, later in that passage, Hebrews 12, 11, says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Discipline's not fun. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline, not fun, it's painful. It's kind of like a plant being pruned, right? I'm sure if, if plants could communicate what they feel when you cut off a branch, uh, it would be a very unpleasant feeling that, that they would be able to express. It's painful. It's not fun. But you know what? When we prune plants, they produce more fruit. And the same thing happens in our lives. If, if God just lets us grow wild, we're not going to produce very much. But if we're cared for, we're tended for, we're disciplined, then we're going to produce a lot of fruit in our lives. Friends, the consequences of our sin are are as sure as the sunrise. But the reality is that those of us who know Jesus and have placed our faith in him, our consequences are meant to be discipline that draws us back to him, back into fellowship with him, back into trust with him, back into a fruitful relationship with him. If your sin causes you to push away from God, then you don't understand the grace of God. You need to remind yourself, or you've forgotten it, maybe. You need to remind yourself of the grace of God. If the consequences of your sin push you farther from God, then you need to be reminded of his gracious love for you. He gave everything for you. He gave himself up on the cross for you. He's going to go after you. He's going to keep after you. He's going to do what's necessary to wake you up, get you back in line and on the path to your health your wellness, and glory for his kingdom. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Adam and Eve. As I, as I think about discipline and consequences. So think about Adam and Eve. They sin. Talk about cascading consequences for all of humanity. They bring sin into the world. And because of it, all of us experience suffering of all kinds. And what does God do for them? He doesn't strike them dead, Right? He kicks them out of the garden. He he actually provides coverings for them. He cares for them as he disciplines them. But he kicks them out of the garden. That's discipline, right? Some some might say that's punishment. but It's actually discipline. Because you know what God says as he kicks them out? He says, I don't want them to stay in the garden because they might eat from the tree of life. And if they eat from the tree of life, then they're going to live forever in their sin. And they won't have any hope of redemption. They won't have any hope of being saved. By being kicked out of the garden, kept from the tree of life, they can place their faith in the coming Redeemer that I just promised them, one that's going to come from their union and from their offspring down to David and down to Jesus. 
And in doing so, they can be saved. So did Adam and Eve, the first sinners, are they going to be in heaven? That, that was a question I was debating with a friend a while back. Are they going to be in heaven? Well, if they place their faith in the coming Messiah, then yes. Even though they caused sin for all of humanity, right? God can still pardon them. He can still forgive them, even though they unleashed Pandora's box, so to speak. But here's the thing. We're pretty confident they did. If you look back and read how they responded to God's consequences, God's punishment for them, Adam named his wife Eve, which means mother of all the living. Not mother of all the spiritually dead, mother of all the living. That's what he named his wife Eve. And, and if, if you read Genesis carefully, you recognize that not all of their sons turned out great. Cain turned out pretty rotten. But Seth and his descendants continued to be faithful to the Lord. So they taught their son Seth to love the Lord and to follow him and to live for him and carry this promise of the coming Messiah. And that went down to Noah. We know what happened with Noah, and that goes down to Abraham, and that goes down to David, and that goes down to Christ. And so I'm confident that Adam and Eve will be with us in heaven, praising the Lord that their sins were not too costly for him to cover with his blood. So I want to leave you with this today, church, okay? When you're going through a trial, we have to remember that God is in control. God, trials in your life is not, you know, God away from the keyboard. He's there. He knows what's going on, and he's with you in those trials. He's right alongside you in those trials all the way through it. And he knows what's going on. He's controlling in his way what's going on, whether it's through confounding the counsel of formerly wise counselors or allowing the enemy's hair to get tangled in the branches or whatever that may look like. He's with you. He cares for you. He's walking alongside you. So what are we going to do about it? We can wallow in our misery. We can get frustrated with our circumstances. We can we can do all those things or we can give ourselves to God. And we can just say, look, God's going God's to work this out. It's up to him. Just like David did, right? Hey, maybe this, this curse will turn into blessing for me. Maybe it won't. Maybe I'll get to go back to the temple or, well, it was a tabernacle at the time and, and worship the Lord and, and see the Ark of the Covenant again. Maybe I won't. That's in his hands. But I'm going to just give myself to the Lord and trust him in this. You know, you may have to ride the storm for a while. It was 11 years of hell for David. It was all, I cannot imagine how awful that was for David and his family to experience the things he experienced. But we, even as, if it takes our entire lives, we need to continue to trust him because he loves us, because he cares for us, because he's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. And because he can do something about your situation. And again, it's, it, maybe it's, as David said, it may be that the Lord has, is going to look at the wrong that's done to you and that he may repay you good with that cursing. We don't know what the Lord has in store for us. But I can tell you this. I've seen it recently. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of many others that God is working out his plans in each of our lives. He is, he is working and he is moving and he cares for us. And he brings about 
great wins for his glory despite the meagerest circumstances. We have a compassionate and gracious God who's ready to help. Now, he may not pull you out of the pit. So, so th- there's the imagery, right? God pulls us out of the pit for salvation, death to life. He pulls us out. But I think other times in our life, he doesn't pull us out. He gets in the pit with us and helps us walk out. 